All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School. Uh, how many of you have been coming already to uh, one of our classes? All right, a lot of you. How many of you, this is the first time you're here today? All right, thank you. Well, welcome, those of you who haven't been here to um, one of these classes. Uh, this is a, a New Life Downtown Sunday School class. We're calling it Philosophy and Christian Thought. I'm Adam Pelser. I'm a professor of philosophy over at the Air Force Academy here in town. Uh, I've been co-teaching this uh, with my colleague, uh, Lindsey Kirchhoff, who also happens to be uh, a, a New Life downtowner here, uh, like I am. I didn't just show up for this class. Um, I've been coming here for a while now. Uh, there's my wife, Katie, in the back. Hi, Katie. This is my son, Luke, in the front. Yeah. Hey. And I got a couple other little ones. One of them's making noise back there. Um, but uh, uh, th- thanks for being here. Uh, we have, um, we've had a good time so far. I've really enjoyed our first couple of weeks. Uh, I- I've gotten a lot out of it. I know Lindsay has too. Uh, Lindsay's not going to be here with us today, um, so I'll be running uh, flying solo, I suppose. I should use the Air Force lingo. Um, and, uh, and, and I think also next week I'll be flying solo. So, uh, so sorry about that. Um, the, uh, the, the, the front of the stage here just got less, 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 far less attractive, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, but Lindsay will be back uh, week five. So uh, come back. Lindsay will be here. And um, uh, she'll be able to correct all my, all my mistakes uh, that I make over the next couple of weeks. Um, this morning, why don't we open with a word of prayer and just commit this time to the Lord um, and thank him for it. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for... Uh, the opportunity to come together and to worship you, to worship you in, in freedom and in peace, uh, that we're not being persecuted, uh, that we don't have to worry about being, uh, being attacked, being harmed, being killed for wanting to know you and wanting to worship you and for loving you. We pray for those around the world who are being persecuted for their faith in you. We pray that you would draw them close to you, that you would give them a peace that passes understanding, um, that, you would, that you would stop the evil uh, against them in the world, and that you would help to remind us just how fortunate we are uh, to not be in that situation. We thank you for the opportunity to study. We thank you for the minds that you've given us. We thank you that you've given us reason to think deeply uh, about your world, about truth, and about you. We ask that you would help us to use our minds well that you would help us to pursue wisdom, pursue truth, and pursue knowledge for the sake of righteousness, not for the sake of being right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as I've done in previous weeks, um, I'll introduce the topic today. Uh, The topic is... Uh, knowing God and uh, or knowing good and knowing God, and this is part two. So last week uh, we talked a little bit about um, that that area, that subdiscipline of philosophy known as epistemology. Uh, in other words, anybody any, can anybody who was here remind us what epistemology is? Study of knowledge, good. That's a nice shorthand description of it. Study of knowledge, maybe study of understanding as well, other kinds of cognitive goods that we might want to achieve. Um, So epistemology, right, comes from the Greek episteme, meaning knowledge or understanding, right, the study of. Um, 
And, uh, and so last week we started talking about moral and religious epistemology. So what can we know or can we know anything in the realm of morality and religion? Um, we played a, a little game last week called Can It Be Known? Uh, I gave you a bunch of different pictures and we said, can this, can this claim be known, right? So uh, Taylor Swift is a good singer, was one of them. Uh, cookies and cream ice cream is better than vanilla ice cream. Um, God exists. Jesus is Lord. Murder is wrong. Uh, these are all things that we talked about, whether they can be known. And you all gave me lots of really good um, uh, answers and some good suggestions about maybe whether it can be known, and if so, how it might be known, or if it can't be known, why, right? What some of the criteria are for knowledge. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. First, I need to do this. Uh, as I've done in previous weeks, I need to give a disclaimer. Um, the views expressed in this presentation course are those of the presenters, uh, in this case just me, uh, and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Uh, so I'm not speaking on behalf of the government here, or the Air Force, or the Air Force Academy, even though I do teach there. All right. And don't blame uh, Glenn if I say anything heretical. Okay, so one of the things that we talked about last time is that knowledge is well-formed true belief. And I told you that, you know, it's sort of debated among philosophers what counts as being well-formed, right? What the sort of, how, how to cash that out. Um, that's a little bit tricky. Uh, but, uh, but it's got to be true. In order to know something, it's got to be true. So uh, if it's false, then you can't know it, right? You might think you know that 2 plus 3 equals 6, but it doesn't. Um, and so you don't know it, right? Um, so knowledge is well-formed true belief. You've got to believe it to have knowledge. It's got to be true. And then it's got to be formed in the right way. It can't just be sort of accidental. Um, you can't have gotten there through some sort of really unre highly unreliable process of belief formation. Um, it's, got to be, it's got to be formed in the right sort of way in order to be able to say that you know it. We also talked about truth. We said truth is accurate correspondence with reality. Um, and those of you, I know some of you are trying to write some things down today. Uh, you brought some pads uh, to take notes on. I apologize that I don't have a handout. Um, there's a lot of information today. So here's what I'm going to offer to do. If anybody wants these slides, I'll just put them on a PDF and make them available to you. And so you can get your email address to me, and uh, I'd be happy to provide you with the slides. So don't feel like you have to write down everything that's on the slides today. Um, I know this is one of the, this is one of the things you learn uh, when you teach at the college level. If you put too much on the slides, nobody pays any attention to what you're saying. All they want to do is write down every word on the slides. Uh, so, uh, so that you don't have to do that, um, just know that I will, I will gladly make these available to you uh, after, after the course. Okay, and then we looked at some popular views of moral and religious knowledge. Um, does anybody remember what some of those popular views were? Yes. Good. Moral relativism. Yeah, one of the views that we talked about last week was moral relativism. And can you say what it is? Very good. Yes. So um, what individuals think is true is based on culture. Either um, he's really, really smart and should be teaching this class, or I did something right last week. Um, hopefully, hopefully a little bit of both. Um, I, could just, I can just hand it over to you at this point. Uh, you're, you're nailing it. Um, that's right. So moral relativism, this idea that moral, moral truth is relative to a culture. Um, you know, different cultures have different values. And so what's true for one culture or people in one culture might not be true for people in another culture. Um, and then we looked at some, uh, some worries for moral relativism, which we'll get to. But what are some of the other views that we looked at? Um, 
What are some of the other popular views? Does anybody remember any other popular views we talked about? Yes. Moral skepticism, excellent. I did not plant him in the audience. Moral skepticism, and what is moral skepticism? How is it different than moral relativism? Does anybody know what skepticism is? What comes to the mind when you think, when you think about the word skepticism? Doubt. Doubt, good. Yeah, moral skepticism, so skepticism just means, right, so we're talking about philosophical skepticism. What we mean is thinking that you can't know something. Okay, so moral skepticism says you can't know anything about morality. So this is a little bit different than moral relativism because, see, moral relativism says, sure, maybe you can know what moral truth is, but that what that moral truth is is going to differ depending on the culture you're in. The moral skeptic says, I'm, I don't think we can know what moral truth is at all. Maybe there is a truth, and there might even be a truth that's not relative to cultures. There might be some absolute or objective moral truth that's true for everybody everywhere, but we can't know what it is. So that's moral skepticism. Now, given that definition of moral skepticism, what do you think religious skepticism is? What's that? Yeah. yeah. Religious doubt. Doubt about religious claims. So it's the idea that, look, there might be truth out there. There might be a way that things really are with respect to religion. It might be the case that God actually exists, or maybe it's the case that God doesn't exist. But at the end of the day, we can't know. Right? We've got some limitations on our ability to know, and so we can't know what that truth is. Even if there is one out there, we can't know what it is. Okay? So it's a claim about knowledge. Again, it's, a, it's an epistemic claim. Okay, so these are some of the popular views that we looked at, and then because um, you all had so many good things to say last week, we, we only really got through uh, our discussion of moral relativism. And at the end of the day, moral relativism, even though it may be motivated, a lot of people, I think, who adopt the moral relativistic stance do so because they want to be tolerant. They think that this is going to help people to be nicer to each other, right? I mean, if we just all stop thinking that we've got it right and everybody else has got it wrong, well, then maybe we can, you know, be better off, right? Um, maybe, maybe we can stop having so many wars. Maybe we can stop killing people. Uh, maybe we can stop being so mean to people who hold different views than us, right? If we just sort of take this stance of thinking, well, maybe there isn't one truth that's true for everybody. Maybe it really is relative to culture. Um, maybe that'll encourage this kind of tolerance. Of course, the problem... Uh, the problem with that is that if it's good for everybody to be tolerant of each other, well then, I mean, it really is good for everybody to be tolerant of each other, no matter what culture they're from. Well, the moral relativism isn't true, is it? Right? This is an absolute or objective truth that's true for everybody, everywhere, right? And so, if you adopt the moral relativistic stance, it looks like, and you do so because you want people to be more tolerant, it looks like... Um, You've got a kind of inconsistent worldview. You think there is something good that's true for everybody, right? Um, and moral relativism can't, can't support that philosophically, right? Um, and it has some other problems. Uh, we talked about how, according to moral relativism, uh, there's, there's no reason to say that Jesus is any better, morally speaking, than Hitler. Right? I mean, if, if they both belong to cultures... Uh, that adopt their moral views. In fact, I mean, you could even maybe make the case on moral relativism that Jesus is worse than Hitler. He belongs to a culture uh, that didn't like some of his moral views, right? He was, 
he, he challenged the moral views of his culture, right? And so it looks, and that just seems obviously false, right? That, that doesn't seem right. We want to be able to look at societies that think it's okay to uh, treat rim, women in really degrading ways and say there's something wrong with that. Even if it is a culturally adopted view, there's something wrong with that. And now we have to be careful here, and again, the worry of tolerance comes up, right? We get, start worrying about colonialism, right, and ethnocentrism. We think that we've got it all figured out, right? We're the Americans. We've got it all figured out. We know what's right and good, and nobody else does, and so we need to go tell them and bring Taylor Swift to McDonald's with us when we do, right? We need to tell them what's right. And so we have to be careful about this, right? Because, look, we've gotten it wrong too, right? haven't we? In our culture, right? We've gotten it wrong, and sometimes we've gotten it wrong, and gotten it wrong and claimed that the Bible is in support of the wrong views that we hold, say, for example, about slavery, right? So we have to be very careful about this. So we said that rather than going sort of the opposite direction and saying, well, maybe there's just no truth that's true for everybody, right? We should just be tolerant of each other because there's no truth. Um, that doesn't seem to hold any water philosophically. Maybe a better approach is just to say um, that we should adopt a kind of humble moral objectivism and that's, that that is better suited to promote respectful toleration of those with whom we disagree. In other words, say, yeah, there's really truth out there, and I think we know some of those truths. Murder really is bad. The Holocaust, yeah, it was wrong. The Rwandan genocide shouldn't have ever happened, right? Nobody should ever treat other people that way. And yet we should remain humble in our moral views. We should. We should recognize that, hey, we get things wrong sometimes. Okay? And we shouldn't ever use our thinking that we're right uh, to, um, to treat people badly. But of course, that's all consistent with believing that there actually is moral truth out there and that there's actually moral truth uh, that can be known. And so that's the next thing that we're going to jump into today is this idea of skepticism. So if there is really truth out there, if it doesn't make sense to say that there is no truth, morally speaking, what should we think about whether we can know that truth? And so that's where we're going today. We're going to really camp out today on moral and religious skepticism, look at some of the philosophical roots of these views, and look at some of the philosophical problems with these views, and then talk about, well, what might be some alternatives? How might we develop a kind of alternative moral epistemology, so a, a, a theory of moral knowledge or an alternative religious epistemology, theory of religious knowledge that makes some sense of how it is that we can actually know truths about these things uh, despite all the reasons to worry about that. Okay, so hang on to your hats. Here we go. This is a little bit more intense more detailed than what we've been doing so far in this class, uh, but I think it's really important. So hold on your hats, and here we go. And, and please, even though um, uh, I'm going to try to be getting through a little bit more material today, please feel free to interrupt at any time. Okay? So anytime you want to, put your hand up, and we'll, and we'll stop and, and answer any questions that you might have or comments that, uh, uh, that you might have. Okay, so first let's think about where does moral and religious skepticism come from? Remember that we said moral and religious skepticism is thinking that we can't know anything in the realm of, moral and, uh, in the realm of morality or in the realm of religion. Why do you think people would hold this view, that, there's, that even if there is truth out there, we can't know what it is? Why do you think uh, somebody might hold that view about morality or about religion? 
oh, okay, so they want to do whatever they want. Maybe, maybe it's a kind of self-justifying right, idea. So maybe, maybe the reason they hold this view is that they, they have a lifestyle that they think might be inconsistent with somebody's morality or somebody's religious views, and, um, and so that's a reason not to uh, want to adopt a kind of realist epistemology. Yes? Okay, good. Many of our doctrinal spiritual realities that we believe cannot be seen. Yeah, that's very good. That's very close uh, to something that I'm, um, that I'm getting at here, uh, to one thing that I'm thinking about. There's also another one that I'm thinking about. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, so the suggestion was, by the way, I'm going to repeat what you say, even if you talk loudly, because we're recording this. So I'm trying to <laughs> make sure that the recording uh, gets, gets your insights on it for the, uh, for the podcast. Uh, the suggestion was, um, maybe somebody in the past has had a very strong um, commitment to a particular moral or religious view. And then um, through you know, one thing or another, maybe, it, maybe that strong commitment to that view has actually led them to do some great harm. And so then they become skeptical as a result, right? They, they see, oh, hey, I had this really confident view, and then it turned out ah, I was probably wrong. And because I held this view so confidently, um, I actually did some real damage uh, in my relationships or in the world somehow. And, and so that can lead to a kind of skepticism. And it doesn't have to be that person, right? Uh, is the only one who might have done some damage. We might say that about other people, right? Look, they held this really strong, you know, confident view, and man, it led to some real problems. So, boy, we should just back off of thinking that we know anything uh, in this area. Yeah. Okay, the suggestion was maybe, maybe they just legitimately are trying to seek truth, and so they've taken a kind of skeptical stance in an attempt to, to get to the truth, right? So they're starting to question some of the views that they hold. Okay, um, important point about that suggestion is that that's not quite full-blown skepticism, right? That's a kind of methodological skepticism. It's like saying, well, I'm going to pretend that I don't know and really investigate carefully, right? I'm going to really sort of just hold these views sort of loosely for the moment, right? I'm going to set my commitment to them aside and really investigate carefully um, to make sure that I've, I've got it right. Uh, so, so that's a kind of what we might think of as a methodological skepticism, right? But it's not a sort of full-blown commitment to, hey, we can't really know anything in this, in this area. Now, that's where that kind of a a path might lead you is, hey, we really can't know anything in this area. Um, but uh, but that's, that's, a, that's a slightly different kind of approach. Yeah, that's good. Okay, good. So I think this is really nice. Um, so I think there are uh, two, two primary motivations for moral and religious skepticism, and I think they, I think they fit well with what you all have been saying. Uh, the first is the problem of disagreement. So, so for one thing, we just look around and we see that people disagree. People have different views. And, you know, really smart people have different views. Really thoughtful people have 
opposing views on matters of morality and religion. Um, moreover, we might even think really apparently good people have differing views on morality and religion, right? We look around the world and we think, there's somebody I really admire, and they don't hold the same moral views that I hold, or they don't hold the same religious views that I hold. Um, there's all this disagreement in the world, right? This isn't like a settled area of knowledge, like we might think science is, right? I mean, this is not some settled area of knowledge, right? There's lots of disagreement, and so maybe we just really can't know. Maybe all we could do is just sort of believe, but short of knowing, right? We just sort of choose the thing that we want to believe, and everybody else chooses the thing that they want to believe, but, but none of us really knows it. It's not really well-formed belief, right? It's not grounded in any kind of in any kind of uh, uh, method of, of belief that would get us to knowledge. So I think disagreement is one of the reasons why a lot of people um, go to moral and religious skepticism. The other, and this is uh, related to our first uh, suggestion, is um, what I'm going to call epistemic scientism. Now, I don't know if anybody else actually uses this term, epistemic scientism. So if you go out and start talking to somebody and you say epistemic scientism and you think that it's like this thing that philosophers talk about, it's probably not. Um, I just sort of, uh, I, I put the two terms together. People do talk about scientism. Scientism is a kind of um, over-evaluation of, of science, right? It's sort of a, uh, a, a inflated view of the importance of science over and above other fields of study or other ways of, of, of um, getting to the truth. And so I'm calling this epistemic scientism because I think a lot of people think this about knowledge. In order to be known, a claim must be scientifically provable or empirically verifiable. In fact, somebody suggested this last week when we were talking about, well, why... If it can't be known that Taylor Swift is a good singer, well, why not, right? Well, maybe it's because it can't be scientifically proven or something. Maybe there's some sort of empirical method we need to be able to go through to be able to prove something, to be able to call it knowledge. And that's a very popular view. So let's talk about that one first. So we've already talked a little bit about the problem of disagreement. I think that one's pretty um, straightforward why people would think there's no knowledge because of disagreement. So now let's talk about this epistemic scientism. So epistemic scientism is a popular holdover from a philosophical view known as logical positivism. And this view was very popular in the early to mid 20th century. Here in America, also across the pond in the UK. Um, this was as close to philosophical orthodoxy as anything ever gets, okay? I mean, philosophers don't often agree with each other about much. Um, but this is one view that was just sort of taken for granted by just about everybody in the philosophical world. Um, and logical positivism said this, the only statements that have meaning, that is what they meant by that, the only statements that can be true or false um, are tautologies and empirically verifiable statements. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit. Uh, first of all, um, some statements that we might make, some sentences we might utter, cannot be true or false. Somebody think of an example? It can't be true or false. What would be an example of that sort of a sentence or claim? Yes. Strawberry ice cream is the best. Uh, that's close. I mean, it, uh, that might be able to be true or false. That might be able to be true or false. Don't think claims here. Think other kinds of sentences. Change the punctuation from a period to something else. Yes. 
What a wonderful show. An exclamation. Yeah. Is, can that be true or false? Um, well, I don't know. Is it expressing a proposition that can be true or false? Maybe. I mean, maybe. What if it's not a wonderful show? I mean, but we still might think it's okay to say it. What a wonderful show. You're just sort of expressing your own sense of the show. Yeah, good. So, uh, another, another kind of sentence. Yeah. God exists. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Uh, we'll get to God exists. <laughs> we'll get to God exists. That's going to, yeah, that's going to take some unpacking. Yes. Oh, there's a good one. A question. Do you like candy canes? Is that question true or false? Neither, right? I mean, that's like asking, what does the color blue smell like, right? It's... I don't know. Now I'm all confused. The philosopher's confusing us, right? Um, yeah, good. So que- questions, right? These are statements, right? Uh, sentences that we might utter um, that are not uh, true or false. How about commands? Not true or false, right? Drop and give me 20. Is that true or false? There's no way to answer that question, right? So here's what the logical positivists said. They said, there are some types of statements that can be true or false. There are others that can't. The kinds that can be true or false, the kinds that have meaning, are tautologies and empirically verifiable statements. Now, a tautology, think of that as roughly a sort of necessary truth. Okay? Mathematical truths might get to count here. So 2 plus 2 equals 4. All bachelors are unmarried. Right? To find out that all bachelors are unmarried, what do we have to do? Do we have to go out and like survey all the bachelors? No, what do we do? I mean, how do we know that all bachelors are unmarried? Yeah, it's just in the definition, right? It's just, it has to be true. Once you understand what bachelor means, and once you understand what unmarried means, right, or married means, you know that all bachelors are unmarried, right? So that's kind of a tautology, right? Something is a sort of necessary truth. It has to be true just by the very nature of it, right? Um, and then empirically verifiable statements. So um, these are just fancy words to mean something like what we said before, scientifically provable, right? So empirically verifiable means something like you use your five senses and you can go out in the world and like test it and see if it's true, right? So the, the claims of natural science turn out, they get to count here. So H2O is water. Um, maybe that gets to count here. Um, so empirically verifiable statements and tautologies, those are the only things that can have meaning or be true or false. Now, interestingly, what does that do to moral claims? Murder is wrong. Is that a tautology? No, it's not. It's not something that's just sort of necessarily true, right? Um, no. If you're worried about murder sort of containing the idea of wrongness, right, then do something else like theft. Theft is wrong, right? Sort of a less morally loaded term, theft, right? Theft is wrong. Is that, is that tautology? No, it's not. Is it empirically verifiable? Can we go out and, like, test it? Do a survey, like, look at all the thefts and figure out if they've got the property of wrongness? Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, the question was, does empirically verifiable mean different, is that different than a preponderance of evidence? Um, 
Not necessarily. I mean, it, it just it, what it's doing is it's it's sort of limiting the type of evidence that can be appealed to here, right? That's what the logical positivists were interested in doing. So they wanted a preponderance of evidence, um, b but of course they're not saying what does it take to make it true. They're saying what does it take to make it actually have meaning, be the sort of thing that can even be capable of being true or false, right? And in order to be capable of being true or false, it's got to be the sort of thing that we could go out and test using our five senses, using something like a, a natural scientific uh, method. Is that helpful? Okay. I know. <laughs> That's the trouble with me. Yeah. Okay, the question is, yeah, so, so if you could go and survey people and get opinions, right, then maybe that would be enough. Yeah, that's not going to count for them. They're, they're going to think, no, people's opinions are just groundless opinions at this point, right? I mean, uh, it's got to be something that you can go look at the world and test somehow, right? Look at the natural world and test it, and that doesn't mean the sort of the social scientific talking to people, surveying people, finding out if people think it's wrong. That's, that's not enough for the... Uh, to count as empirically verifiable, according to logic positivists. Okay, so this view was really, really popular. Okay? This view was really, really popular, and you can see why, as a result of this view, a lot of people currently in our society today would believe that in order to be known, a claim must be scientifically provable um, or empirically verifiable, or maybe it can be like mathematical. It can be some sort of necessary truth, right? Um, you can see how those two are related, um, but here's... So moral and religious claims, it turns out, on this view are neither true nor false, they're actually meaningless. They're literally meaningless. They're, they're, they're like a question or a command. They, they're not a truth claim. It might sound like a truth claim, it might look like a truth claim, but it's not a truth claim. When you say murder is wrong, it looks like a claim, it doesn't look like a question, it doesn't look like a command, it doesn't look like another kind of a statement, it looks like the claim H2O is water, and yet it's not. It's very fundamentally different. It cannot be true and it cannot be false. It is literally meaningless. So what is it? What is it doing when you say this claim? Well, they, they, they came up with a story to try and explain what this kind of language, this moral and religious language was doing. And one of the popular views was emotivism. And emotivism said that if you say murder is wrong, what you're really saying is something like this. What a bad murder. Right? Like, a, what a wonderful show, right? Murder, boo. Oh, murder. That's what you're saying when you say murder is wrong. You're just expressing an emotion. You're just emoting, right? That's all you're doing on emotivism when you say murder is wrong. And if we apply that to um, language about God or language about religion, uh, we might get something like God exists equals God. Yay! Woohoo, God! Yeah! Right? So that's what they thought, right? That's what they said people were doing when they made moral claims and we might even apply that to the religious context as well. Another popular view that sort of developed out of this was subjectivism. So this is a little bit different than emotivism. Subjectivism says, if you say murder is wrong, what you're really saying is, murder upsets me. I feel upset about murder. So you're making a claim about your emotions, which is different than, making, than expressing an emotion, right? Crying or weeping or saying, yay, is expressing an emotion saying something like, well, that makes me happy. That's making a claim about your emotions. So the subjectivist says what you're really doing is you're saying something about your, your feelings, right? You're saying, murder makes me feel bad. 
That's what you're saying when you say murder is wrong. You're not making a truth claim. You're just saying something about how it makes you feel. You're not saying something about the world and about murder itself. Yeah, I saw a hand go up in the back. Yeah. Yes. Okay, having a vision, would that be considered empirical evidence? Um, not for the logical positivist. Yeah, not for the logical positivist. That's, that sounds like, you know, spiritual mumbo-gumbo, right? This is, not, this is not real natural science. We're not going out into the world and testing things, right? Um, now, perception, right? Just ordinary sort of sense perception, that's going to count, right? So actually seeing something, <laughs> having a vision in that sense, that gets to count as empirical evidence. But having a sort of religious vision or some sort of morally informed vision or something like that, no, that's not going to count. But that's a really interesting question and suggestion, and I actually think um, that, that matters for the development of an alternative uh, moral and religious epistemology. So we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Yes? Yeah. That's right. This is this is a kind of radical denial of of supernaturalism. The idea that there is anything worth knowing that can be known that can be true out there in the world other than the natural world. That's that that, that that's that's a nice way of of sort of summing it up. Um, and of course, for for the logical positivists, it wasn't just religious claims and ethical claims. It was also metaphysics. So remember, we talked about metaphysics as one of the the main subdisciplines of philosophy. Well, they pretty much were against metaphysics. So anything having to do with the fundamental nature of reality, right? What the what the purpose is, where all this stuff came from in the first place. All of that is written off by the logical positivists, right? They're against metaphysics. Um, and so that's another way of, of putting this claim, that, that they're sort of against supernaturalism. So you're right. Um, now, nobody's a logical positivist anymore. Nobody. Nobody. There is not a single logical positivist. I mean, this used to just rule the day in philosophy departments, from Oxford to Harvard to Stanford. This ruled the day. So what happened? Why isn't anybody a logical positivist anymore. Because it turns out that logical positivism, and I'm going to make the claim that epistemic scientism, the view that I think uh, follows from it, are self-defeating. What does that mean? Look, if logical positivism is true, then guess what? The central claim of logical positivism is meaningless. The claim that the only statements that have any meaning are those that are tautologies or, empirically, or that are empirically verifiable. Is that claim a tautology? No, it's not. Is it empirically verifiable? Can you go out into the world and test this claim, this claim that the only claims that are true or false, the only claims that have meaning, are tautologies or empirically verifiable statements? Can you go out and test that claim empirically? No. Oops. Right? Turns out that if logical positivism is true, then it's not. Uh-oh. <laughs> we better jump off that ship real fast, right? And that's what everybody figured out around the middle of the 20th century. Oh, oh, we can't hold this view anymore. This is philosophically bankrupt. Yes, Ashley, yeah.
Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay, the suggestion was, if you just look at medicine as one branch of science, right, um, looks like we, we're constantly improving our knowledge about medicine, and so, you know, you might think one medication is really, really good, and everybody thinks it's a great idea, and then, you know, 10 years later, it's like, oh, you better not be taking this, and then you see those commercials on during the football games that said, if you ever took this medication, and, you know, now you're dead, or you took this medication, and, and now you're bleeding all over, right, um, then, you know, call us, because we'll help you file your lawsuit, right? Um, um, right, so we do have this problem, right? We, science does have this problem, right? We better not be overconfident in any of our scientific views because it might turn out that we're going to, you know, improve on those views later and find out that they're actually not true. Uh, so that's a good point, right? Um, we, sh we shouldn't be too overconfident about scientific views, um, but uh, the, the deeper philosophical point here is that we shouldn't limit knowledge to that realm of study, right? We shouldn't limit knowledge to the natural sciences and to that which can be empirically verifiable um, because it turns out there's no, no real way to do that um, without being self-defeating. Um, similarly, so think about the claim um, that the only things that can be known are those which is, are scientifically or empirically verifiable. Scientifically provable or empirically verifiable. Those are the only claims that can be known. Think about that claim. Is that self-defeating? Why is it self-defeating? Yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah, because that claim itself can't be verified by the five senses, which means according to its own standard, can it be known? It can't be known, right? It's a little bit different than the logical positivist claim because their claim was about having truth value. So this claim is about what can be known, but it turns out if epistemic scientism is true, then we can't know it to be true. Maybe it is true, but we can't know it. We shouldn't claim to know it. That's one of the things we can't know. Epistemic scientism is one of the things that we can't know if it's actually true. Well, that's a strange kind of a view, right? A view that if it's true, you can't know it to be true is a strange kind of a view. It's not straightforwardly self-contradictory the way the logical positivist claim was, but it is undermining. It undermines itself, right? If you think it's true, then you can't claim to know it's true, or you shouldn't claim to know it's true. Okay, and, and, and so let's talk about this disagreement then. What about the disagreement problem? Well, the problem with disagreement is that disagreement doesn't entail the impossibility of knowledge. Just because people disagree, maybe even uh, very seriously disagree about an issue, even if there's lots and lots of disagreement, it doesn't mean that you can't know anything about that issue. And if it turns out that if disagreement does entail the impossibility of knowledge, then guess what? We can't know that moral and religious skepticism are true. I'm not a moral skeptic. I'm not a religious skeptic. So look, there's disagreement, right? Some people are moral skeptics and religious skeptics, and I'm not one of them. I think they're wrong. So then we must not be able to know whether there's any truth to the matter, right, about moral and religious skepticism. Well, that's a problem, right? So again, disagreement has this sort of self-undermining. The problem of disagreement has this sort of self-undermining quality, just like uh, the logical positivism and epistemic scientism did. Okay, questions there. I feel like we need to pause for a moment before moving on. I've said a lot so far. I know this is a lot of information all at once. Yes.
Okay, so yeah, so there are there are people outside of uh, any kind of religious uh, tradition that want to acknowledge the, uh, a possibility of supernaturalism, a possibility that there might be something other than the, the just the, the empirical world out there, um, that there might be something else to the world that we can know through some other means, right? Uh, you don't have to be a theist, uh, per se, to think that that's true. So you might believe in some sort of you know, paranormal activity, some kind of supernatural activity that's not theistic. Um, and, if, and if there's anything that exists out there in the world that, that can be known, that we can go out and know, um, then it turns out, that this kind of a view is false. I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, so then what do we do? Oh, I'm sorry. I've got one more point on this slide here. Least immorality disagreement is overrated. Um, what does this mean? It means that um, there really isn't that as much disagreement as people might think that there are when it comes to morality, right? Most, most cultures, most people around the world really do think that murder is wrong, really do think that you should be kind to people, uh, really do think that you shouldn't be a jerk. Uh, these, are, these are sort of uh, wi very widely held claims, uh, um, very widely held beliefs, and so the disagreement actually is overrated. Now, how that uh, disagreement gets applied, um, or, or sorry, how those views get applied, then there's disagreement, right? Sometimes there's disagreement on how to actually apply the moral values and the moral principles that people hold. So, for example, in the abortion debate, um, nobody in the abortion debate says life doesn't matter. But they do debate about whether the fetal life counts as a personal life that ought to matter more than the choice of a woman, right? I mean, that's really what the debate is about. It's not about whether murder is wrong. Everybody in the debate thinks murder is wrong. Right? Everybody in the debate thinks it's wrong to kill, intentionally kill innocent persons. Everybody thinks that. The question is whether the fetus is just such a person, right? I mean, that's, that's really the question, right? Um, which, importantly, uh, notice, is, is not really a scientific question, right? We're not going to answer this question by sort of doing some scientific experiments, talking about DNA, talking about brain function. I mean, we can try and do it that way, but at the end of the day, what really matters is whether those features of the fetus make it count as a person, and that's a philosophical question, right? That's a metaphysical question. It's a question about what makes for a person, right? Um, but that's really what the debate is about. It's not a debate about whether murder is wrong, right? It's a debate about whether this counts as murder, right? That's really what the debate is about. And so there, while there may seem to be a ton of moral disagreement in the world, it's really not as overblown as, as some uh, make it out to be. Um, yeah, hand up, yeah. Okay, yeah. Good question. So the question is 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 the the sort of agreement that murder is wrong really more just a superficial agreement and um that the person who's claiming that the abortion isn't murder is really um just trying to justify right. Right. 
Yeah, no, I'm I'm treading on very thin ice here by starting to talk about abortion, right? Uh, uh, we, we're not going to get anywhere else this morning. Um, uh, no, 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 I understand the question. So the question is, right, I mean, so say I'm having a dialogue with Hitler, right, and, and I'm saying, hey, it's really wrong to murder Jews, right? And he says, oh, well, they're not persons, turns out, right? They don't have a moral right to life like you and I do, right? And so now we're just having a factual debate about whether a, a, a Jew counts as a person, right? Um, and so you might say, oh, look, there's no moral disagreement between me and Hitler. Turns out we both agree murder is really wrong. Hitler is really anti-murder, right? Um, he just doesn't think that Jews are persons. He's got this sort of, you know, Darwinian theory about persons and thinks that they don't count and... Um, and so we're just having a factual debate, right? I mean, it seems like that would be sort of a cop-out, right? I mean, it's, it's not really the right way to describe the disagreement that I'm having with Hitler, right? Um, good. That's a good point. Uh, it, may be, it may be that it turns out that's part of what's happening here. Um, I think most folks... I have to be very careful here. Um, most folks who are pro-choice... Um, I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt uh, that they're not being Hitler here. They're not just saying something that sort of is very obviously murder to them is is not, right? That should should obviously seem like murder to them is not really one. Um, I think maybe it should seem more obvious to people um, that it is. Um, I think maybe that's part of what this Planned Parenthood issue that's going on right now is about is... Um, the, the evidence, right, sort of confronting people with evidence that this kind of life really does count, really ought to count. Um, but but I'd, like to, I'd like to think about the folks who are on the pro-choice pro side of this debate really are not, um, I, I don't want to make the equation that they're sort of doing what Hitler was doing with the Jews, right? Um, uh, Hitler, I think, was... was far more off base in thinking that the Jews were not, didn't have a right to life. Um, um, maybe that's just because the evidence was sort of more readily available to him. Uh, maybe that's the case in this, in this situation. But Okay, so this is good. I'm I, I am glad we're talking about this. I know this is a controversial uh, subject, but this is what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about moral and religious knowledge. Can we know anything to be true? When it comes to morality and when it comes to religion, um, I, think, I think maybe I do know something to be true in this case. Um, but I also want to be careful here. I don't want to be humble, in my opinion, given that there are um, good people and smart people and well-meaning people who disagree. Um, I want to hold that view humbly. Um, so I think there is a truth to the matter, and I think it probably can be known. And I think the best way to come to try and know that truth is through dialogue with people with whom we disagree and respectful dialogue, right? Actually really listening to what they have to say, right? Really listening and really taking them seriously and not coming into the dialogue with a sort of prejudgment that, oh, if you don't hold my view, then you're such a bad person, right? But really trying to listen to them and understand them. And I think that's how we're going to get to the truth about these matters, um, both individually and as a society. So that leads us into our next um, slide here, which is about moral epistemology. So uh, I, as an alternative to moral skepticism or to religious skepticism, to moral relativism, I think, I think 
there really is a truth to the matter about morality in most in 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 most cases, and I think in this case, um, most of us do know that laying down one's life for another is morally good or admirable. Right? This is something Jesus told us thousands of years ago, but it's something that most of us can just see too. It just seems obvious, right? Laying down one's life for another is that's a good thing to do, right? that's a noble thing to do. We admire people who are willing to do that, and we know that murder is immoral, wrong, right? We didn't need the Ten Commandments to tell us that. I mean, it's nice that it's there in the Ten Commandments, but I think we just sort of look at what happened in Oregon and we just think it's terrible, it's horrible, it's horrific, right? It's really, and it's evil, right? It really is evil. It really is wrong to do that to people. I think we can just simply see that some actions are obviously right and others are obviously wrong. Now, this gets to the question that was raised earlier about, well, what if you had a kind of a vision, right? Um, would that count as evidence? Um, well, not for the logical positivist, but I think we can have a kind of epistemology that maybe allows for something, not, maybe not an ecstatic vision. It's not going to maybe count entirely on its own, right? If you just think, well, I had this vision, and now all of a sudden I know the truth, and everybody else doesn't, right? Um, I think we ought to be worried about those kinds of claims. Um, but I think in this case, I think we do have a kind of faculty of moral perception. I think we can just see that some things are wrong and that some things are really good. We were made that way, yes. Peace Child. I am familiar with the book Peace Child. Yeah. Yes. Right. That's right. Yeah, and they had a value. Okay, good. So, so the question is, look, it looks like some people in some cultures maybe don't see that murder is wrong. And in this particular case, um, uh, when the story of Judas was presented uh, to, this, to this indigenous people group, uh, they thought Judas was great, you know. Woo! Way to go, Judas. Good betrayer, right? <laughs> they thought betrayal was really good, um, if you were good at it, right? Um, yeah, no, uh, that's a good point. Um, what I'm suggesting here is not necessarily that um, we have an infallible faculty, but I think that we do have a faculty um, that helps us to see right and wrong. But it doesn't get it right all the time, um, just like our five senses don't get it right all the time, right? We can trust our ordinary vision about the world, but sometimes we hallucinate, sometimes we um, you know, see optical illusions, right? Um, sometimes we see things and they appear to be different than they are. We see a stick in the water and it appears bent, but it really isn't bent. Um, we see the Mueller liar lines, anybody familiar with those, right? Uh, lines with arrows on, I'll, I'll bring a diagram of those in next time. Um, we look at them and they look like they're different links, but really they're not, you know? And so I, I think in this case, um, yeah, the, the, the moral faculty can go wrong, and I think without the help uh, of revelation, I think it does go wrong, and that's one of the problems, is that our moral faculties are messed up by sin. Um, yes? That... Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. So, so there was a, certainly a, a, a 
elements of, of deep moral agreement, right, even within that culture that had these, um, these sort of uh, controversial views, right? Um, yeah, good. So C.S. Lewis says that we can see what's right. He says this in, in a couple of places. He says this in Mere Christianity. He also talks about it quite a bit in The Abolition of Man. So in The Abolition of Man, uh, Lewis says this. Uh, so he's talking about this little green book, this little um, grammar book that was being used to teach, um, to teach English grammar uh, to, to school children. And one of the things that he got really worried about in this little green book is there was a story. Um, there was a story about Coleridge uh, who says... He's, he's recounting a story. Coleridge is recounting a story about a waterfall, and there's two people at the waterfall, and one of them calls the waterfall sublime, and the other one calls it pretty. And Coleridge says, the one who called it sublime was right. And he's sort of upset at the one who called it pretty. And the writers of this little green book say, um, well, Coleridge is being silly here, right? I mean, they're, they're not really saying, the tourists aren't really saying anything about the waterfall itself. There's no way that they can be right or wrong with respect to their um, evaluation of this waterfall. Um, they're just expressing something about themselves. And so this is what he says. Um, he says about Gaius and Titius, this is the names that he gives, the fictitious names that he gives to this author of this actual real uh, grammar book. He says, they see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda. They have learned from tradition that youth is sentimental, and they conclude that the best thing they can do is to fortify the minds of young people against emotion. My own experience as a teacher tells an opposite tale. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. He goes on, another paragraph to say, until quite modern times, all teachers and even all men believed the universe to be such that certain emotional reactions on our part could be either congruous or incongruous to it. They believed, in fact, that objects did not merely receive but could merit our approval or disapproval, our reverence or our contempt. The reason why Coleridge agreed with the tourist who called the cataract sublime and disagreed with the one who called it pretty was, of course, that he believed inanimate nature to be such that certain responses could be more just or ordinate or appropriate to it than others. What's he saying? He's saying that we have this faculty, and in fact, it's tied up with our emotions. There is a connection between emotions and moral knowledge. It's not the one that the logical positivist said. It's not that when we make moral claims, we're just expressing emotions. It's not what the subjectivist said. It's not that when we make moral claims, all we're doing is telling people about how it makes us feel. That's what Gaius and Titius thought. Rather, it may be that our emotions can actually put us in touch with, help us to see, right? When we get angry at an injustice, what we're doing is we're seeing just how bad it is. When we're horrified when we think about the Holocaust, what we're doing is we're seeing just how morally evil it was. When we admire a great virtuous person, what we're doing is we're seeing how good they are. What we do when we admire the waterfall or stand in awe at the snow-capped Rocky Mountains, right? so we're seeing just how beautiful they are. 
So maybe we can come to actually know some of these things, and maybe part of the way that we can come to know some of these things is through a kind of emotional perception, a kind of emotional vision of these things. That's what C.S. Lewis thought. And what he thought was so bad, and this is what that book, The Abolition of Man, was about, what he thought was so bad about telling children to stop trusting their emotions, right, to think that, oh, if they're having this feeling, it's just telling them something about them and not something about the world. What he thought was so bad about that is that it was going to cut them off from their primary source of moral knowledge. You want to know what, what really is right and wrong in the world? You better cultivate just emotions. You better cultivate the right kind of emotional responses so that you can see it. Just like with vision, you want to be able to, you know, get good at bird watching? Well, you've got to train yourself to be able to see the birds, right? You want to be good at seeing cancer cells in a microscope? Well, that takes work. It takes training. You want to get good at seeing what's right and wrong? Well, you've got to train your emotional faculties, your emotional perception. He thought what these folks were doing, these writers of this book, unintentionally perhaps, was cutting people off from their primary source of moral knowledge. And eventually he thinks that's what leads to the abolition of man. It leads to their inability to see this natural moral law that really is out there, which he calls the Tao in the next essay in this book. There is a natural moral law out there. It's, a, it's accessible to all of us. And one of the ways that we can get in touch with that is through a kind of rational emotions, emotions working together with reason to sort of figure out uh, what is true and what is good and what is beautiful in the world. Okay, we are a few minutes past time, um, but I'm going to quickly say something about religious epistemology. In the same way that I think we should be optimistic about knowing truths in the moral realm, I think we should be optimistic about coming to know what's true in the religious realm. For example, I think we can just know God exists through a kind of spiritual perception or sense of deity. Somebody have their Bible with them, want to open to um, Romans 1, verse 18, and read a few verses for us. You win. This is like, you know, a little kid Sunday school where they like win if they get to the verse first. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thank you. Will you read verse 18 through 22 for us, please? Thank you very much. What's Paul saying there? He's saying we can know God. He's saying even those who are living in ungodliness and unrighteousness can know God. They just have to look around at the world to see him. All right, we can see his handiwork in the Rocky Mountains that we live in the shadow of over here. We can see the beauty that he created in the waterfall that C.S. Lewis is talking about. We can see his goodness in the love expressed by Christians, we can see evil and see the way that evil is not fitting, right? that it really is wrong. 
and we can see God. We can actually come to see God and know God directly through a kind of direct experience, right? Maybe not through a kind of ecstatic vision, maybe through a kind of ecstatic vision. Although I think that's probably rare, right? But we can come to know him. He says his, 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 his invisible attributes are plainly seen in the world through his creation, through what he's created. We can see that he is good, that he is powerful, that he is knowledgeable, right? We can see all of these things about God. We can see his invisible attributes in the natural world. So Paul is saying we can come to know that God exists. We can actually have knowledge. Is it empirically verifiable? Can we go out and test it in a lab, right? No, no, it's not that kind of knowledge. But it's knowledge nonetheless because it's well-formed true belief. There really is a God there. And if we believe in him and we come to that belief through these sort of natural faculties that he's given us, the ability to see him in creation, to know him directly in relationship, if we can do that, then we can know God. We really can know him. It's not some special other kind of knowledge where, oh, you've got your scientific knowledge and then you've got this other thing that maybe we're going to be willing to call knowledge. No, it really is knowledge. It's well-formed true belief. Yes. probability of knowledge. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think he's talking about probability here. I think he's just saying you look around and you just find yourself believing God exists. You just see it, right? I go outside and I look at a tree and I just think, oh, there's a tree there. And I look at the mountains and I just think, oh, there's a God there. I look at my children when they're born and I think, ah, oh, there's a God there, right? There's, there's a God behind all of this, right? There's a God who created all of this, and he's good. I, th- I think that's what Paul's talking about. I don't think he's talking about you look around and then you sort of do your probabilistic calculation and you think, well, maybe, maybe God exists, maybe he doesn't. Well, the probability is pretty high, so I guess you should believe it. You know, it's like 65%. So, no, I think he just thinks you just find yourself with this belief. You just, oh, God exists, and you're in awe, you know? You, you can experience him directly, right? Like, you know, I got Jay sitting in the front row here, you know, and I just sort of see Jay, and I don't think, well, should I believe that Jay exists? Well, I don't know. The probability's pretty high. My vision's pretty good, right? He looks like a person. He could be a cleverly painted robot. Uh, he's probably a person. Uh, probability's pretty good. I guess I'll go with that, you know? I, I, I really, I think Paul's saying we can just experience God directly here. Okay, unfortunately, we're out of time. I would love to talk to uh, any of you about this more. Um, I think we should finish here uh, for the sake of time, and we'll pick this up again next week. So next week, our topic is um, happiness. Uh, We are going to get there. I know I've been promising you that we're going to get to that topic. We are going to get there um, next week. I was going to... There's my summary, bottom line. I'll give that to those of you who want the slides. Uh, If you want any suggestions for... um, Oh, it's having a hard time keeping up. If you want any suggestions for um, further reading, sorry. I would recommend either of these. So for our sort of introduction to philosophy and Christian thought, um, J.P. Moreland's Love Your God With All Your Mind is really good. Odds Guinness's Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. Um, this stuff about moral and religious epistemology, um, some good books that I would encourage you to look at if you're interested in reading more is Knowing Christ Today, Why We Can Trust Spiritual Knowledge by Dallas Willard, and then C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, which I read you a little bit from uh, this morning. And I have all those books with me, so if you want to take a look at them uh, before you leave today, I'd be happy to show you uh, my copy here. 
All right, let's close uh, with a quick word of prayer. And uh, thank you all for being here, and I'll see you all again uh, next week. Dear God, thank you so much uh, for this time. Thank you for, um, again, for our minds that you give us to help us to think deeply about these things. We pray that you would draw us into your wisdom, that you would enlighten our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to see goodness and truth and beauty in the world, and that you would help us to display it uh, to others around us so that they might be turned to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.